Roll tight, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, along with engineer-producer Mark Phillips at Airwave Studio in Birmingham, and we're buzzed about having one of Bama's brightest stars stopping by in a few minutes. But first, we want to talk about the big game at Bryant-Denny coming up this week with the SEC Western Division brand of Bulldogs. The mutts from Mississippi are going to be headed up the highway toward T-Town with their tails wagging and bragging about beating up on a couple of conference cats. And it figures they'd be feeling all frisky about finishing off from Kentucky and Auburn in that rare win over Tennessee. But the Maroon may be singing another tune after they trot into Tuscaloosa and tangle with the tie. It does stand to reason that the Bulldogs have got a bone to pick with Bama because the teams have played 95 times and the Tides won 74 of them, so it's not very often the Bulldogs' bite's been near as bad as their bark. Bama's won the last four, and heck, that's 28 years and dog years, so there hadn't been much to crow about around the kennel for a while. It is true, though, that a lot of Bama's battles with the Bulldogs over the years have been downright Donnybrooks, regardless of the two teams' records, and these wars have been waged in eight different cities. Alabama's hosted games with Mississippi State and Tuscaloosa, Birmingham and Montgomery, and believe it or not, at one time or the other in this series, the Tides met the Maroons in Meridian, Jackson, and vacation destinations such as Columbus, Aberdeen, and of course Starkville, possibly the most appropriately named city in the SEC. Now I'm not dogging Starkville because there's some fine folks there, and they got a cutting edge curriculum in meteorology, so some of our finest weather forecasters favor Maroon. But with that many pastures in proximity, you won't need to ask anybody where that low-hanging haze is coming from, because the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. State's having that odd good year, and of course they'll be all lathered up about it. We're assuming their campus 4-H club would prefer that their game week motivational methods won't mimic Jackie Sherrill's from a few years ago when he was head coach there and had a bull transformed into a steer at practice in a macabre attempt at firing up his team before a game against the Texas Longhorns. Ouch. We hope there won't be a need to get the Humane Society involved again, but we're confident that the Crimson Canine Control Corps will keep those puppies on a short leash. So if you're going to be the one who let the dogs out, I'm not saying they'll wind up spayed, but they may wish they'd stayed in Starkville. That said, we want to welcome our visitors from Mississippi, but we plan on keeping that critter of yours curbed because when we sing, Go Teach the Bulldogs to Behave, we talking about you. And if you forgot your dog's distemper shots and that mangy mutt goes manic, keep in mind the name of the game is football, and we might just give a whole new understanding to the phrase pooch kick. Oh, and by the way, less cowbell. Our guest today grew up in Birmingham in the shadows of Legion Field. He played high school ball at Glen High School. And an appointment with Destiny delivered him to the Tide where he made a lot of great plays on a team with a lot of great players. He's one of the all-time great running backs in Bama history, and the Broncos saw the star power, so they picked him in the first round of the 1989 NFL Draft. He played for Denver for four years and closed out his pro career in 92 and 93 with the Miami Dolphins. He also spent several seasons as the head coach of the Birmingham Steel Dogs in the Arena League. He still lives here in Birmingham, and it looks like his legacy will live for a long time because he's the father of three sons that may play for many more years. Bobby Humphrey is in the house. How you doing, and what you doing these days? Man, Steve, man, it is great to be here, man. I am doing great and just raising kids, man. I've been fortunate to have three ball players in the house and a couple of girls that run track, taking out to their mom. So 
I've been chasing kids for the past 10 years. Well, you got a full-time job before you go to work. Then. <laughs> Man, I'm tired. I had to actually go to work and take a vacation. <laughs> I heard that. You know, you grew up in that neighborhood right next to Legion Field. And, and back then, Bama played most of its big games there, including the Iron Bowl. You know, to a little kid, it must have seemed like an alien invasion for 80,000 people to show up all of a sudden. What are your memories about growing up over there? Parking cars and selling Cokes, baby. I mean, uh, parking cars on the public street. <laughs> Go figure that. Well, I guess I can figure that. I think I paid you one time. Yeah, would you imagine not paying in front of the project? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, parking cars and uh, selling Cokes, boy, were my funnest memory. I tell you, boy, when Alabama played at Legion Field, it, it brought a great economic impact to the to the housing projects there. And I, that was my fundamental memories, man, especially selling coats because I sold for three quarters and then I watched the tide play yeah. for the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, so it was quite a quite an honor to be able to be around that type of atmosphere growing up as a youngster. Well, was Bama kind of your favorite team as a kid or did that just develop over the years? It developed over the years. They were my favorite team as a kid because, you know, they were the only team that I knew about and had direct contact with watching the guys come around doing the uh, pregame walk. You know, the Bama guys and, and, and being around all of the loyal fans uh, who cheered every Saturday when the tide came to You know, uh, and all Birmingham. those buses and the police escort and all that, all of a sudden, man, it's got to be. Oh, man, it was like downtown New York right there in the housing projects in Birmingham, man, for the weekend. So it was a lot of excitement during those days, especially to a kid 12, 13 years old. Oh, man. You know, I read somewhere where your mom wasn't real crazy about you playing football when you was when you were young in grade school. And by the time you got to Glenn High School, which is, I think is a middle school now, you were an established player by then and recruiters started showing up. How did all that play out over those years? Well, you know, uh, it wouldn't have played out very well if my mom wouldn't have agreed to let me play it. I thought I disobeyed her and joined the team. Mm-mm. I didn't think I was going to be able to walk again for the next <laughs> next year or two. Uh, but she allowed me to play, and I only played one year of middle school ball. Uh, and then I uh, went on to Glenn High School, and I tell you, things started picking up after my sophomore or junior season, with recruits coming around and starting to recruit me as you know as one of the top recruits in the country, and all that that was new to my family and I, being that you know, and it was new to the Glenn High School, being that they never had a recruit. Uh, uh, athlete being recruited to that magnitude. They've had athletes in the past that have been recruited, but not to that magnitude. You know, some basketball players, but never a football player. You had Fred Harris, who was a basketball player that was highly recruited, but the most highly recruited player that went on to the NBA and played for the uh, Philadelphia 76ers uh, was Andrew Tony. Oh, yeah, also I remember him. Game. Yeah, you remember yeah, he was Went to like Louisiana Tech or someplace down there. Yeah, small school, but played a number of years yeah. in the NBA and was – With Dr. J. Yeah, that's right. And three-point shooter could, could shoot the lights out. Fill it up. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was a big deal to all of the student athletes as well as just the, uh, the student body and the coaches and principals and teachers and everybody that was at Glenn High School during those uh, mid-'80s, those early-'80s. Uh, when I was being recruited with all the uh, attention that Glenn High School was receiving because of a kid by the name of Bobby Humphrey running around. <laughs> you know, see, I remember Forrest Davis talking about you and writing about you. And back then, and of course, Glenn was not a big school as far as uh, the numbers of the, in the student body. But if I recall correctly, I think you were playing some wide out and running back, probably two or three or four positions. And, and I remember the talk being during that recruiting process that they weren't sure where you're going to wind up at wide out or running back, but you was going to play somewhere. Yeah, you know, at that time, you know, we didn't have very many people on the team. So a lot of guys had to play uh, 
both offense and defense in, in the various of positions. I played a little bit of defensive tackle, nose tackle in some ball games. Believe it or not, you know, I could blitz the line, get through the line of scrimmage before, you know, actually an offensive lineman could get their hand on me. So every now and then I get down and play, you know, nose tackle or defensive tackle, and uh, along with playing some linebacker and defensive back were some of the positions I played on the defensive side of the ball. And then on the offense, other than quarterback, I played both wide receiver and uh, and running back. But, you know, that was some fun days back then. Most of the kids back then, you know, played both ways. And, and it was a lot of fun. It gets you in shape, too. Oh, it was tip-top shape because, you, you know, you ran a lot, you moved a lot, and and, uh, and and it's not like, you know, the days now where you're at your Hoovers and your other schools where you actually got 11 men that – are actually 11 starters on offense, defense, and you even got another 11 starters on special teams, on certain special teams. Very situational. Yeah, you know, so it's a lot different now than it was back then. We didn't have very many kids on the the, uh, football team that came out for football back in that time. We were known for basketball. You know, Glenn High School was a basketball school, it was a trade school, where most of the kids that came there came there because they had an elective or a trade that they wanted to kind of pursue. You know, I myself was uh, in printing, so I took printing, and there were some other kids that took auto mechanics, auto body, and some of the other trades that were available uh, at Glenn High School. But, you know, we were a small school, one of the smallest schools in 6A and uh, during that time when I was there. But, you know, the football was good. We still, you know, believed in, in playing hard and, and having a good time. And, and you know, and Friday is something special, you know, in high school football. Yeah. It's, it's very special. Still it, is. It's, it still is. You know, I would rather go see a uh, Friday night football game than go into an NFL game, you know. Me too. Just the purity of the game. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I just stop by and watch any high school game or any little league game. Well, it's fine. And, you know, you're you're exactly right. I'll, I get out and go to a couple of games a year too. And I uh, grew up in Tuscaloosa, so I don't really have a particular favorite team here in the Birmingham area, but I enjoy going because, you know, you get kids on the team, the kids in the band, the uh, cheerleaders, concession, everybody's involved in, in the excitement and all those teenage hormones going crazy. I mean, the energy's just off the charts. You know? it, it's unbelievable, and you have so many different things going on. You know, you got you got parents more involved now, whether they be holding the big flag up for the team to run out of and you know, the Chili's dad, Chili's moms and dads, the band members, moms and dad. You know, it's just a big event every Everybody Friday plays night. a part. Yeah, yeah, everybody plays a part. And it takes everybody to actually pull the, to the event. I feel it's become more of an, of an event now uh, than just a football game where, you know, a, a variety of people have to be involved for the success of the, both the program and the night itself for the ball game. What was on your mind? What was going through your mind when you were going through the recruiting process? And what were the main things that led you to decide to sign with Bama? I think what was going through my mind at the time uh, <clears throat> when I was being recruited was was standing state was one. You know, I was being recruited by a number of colleges outside of the state of Alabama. You know, Clemson being one. Matter of fact, Woody McCorvey recruited me from Clemson when he was with Clemson in his early years. And uh, Woody McCurry and I became very attached and became pretty good friends. Good guy. But I think Woody kind of knew that I was going to be a state guy, you know, as we got closer to, you know, kind of making a decision. Uh, Jackie Sheriff at, over at Texas A&M was another guy who recruited me pretty rapidly and hard and LSU uh, and Ole Miss. Uh, but, you know, it boiled down, to, and you know, back at that time, you know, when you were talking about the 80s, you know, most of the kids, the athletes in the state of Alabama stayed in state, whether they went to Alabama or Auburn. But as we got closer, you know, I began to start to try to figure out, you know, what where will I fit in better? You know, 
Although I didn't grow up with any family members or any loyalty to either schools, and I'm talking about Alabama, Auburn. Uh, you know, I was kind of a little bit of a favorite to Alabama because of all the connections that I had, you know, I had made, or I shouldn't say connections, or actual the feelings that I had connected with them because of them playing at Legion Field on the weekend. Uh, and Cornelius Bennett was on the team, and he was just up street at Inslee. Right, he, he was up the street at Inslee, and then um, then I had a uh, you know I was dating this hottie from Jackson Nolan High School, and oh, she was oh, a local now, Birmingham girl. Okay, now we're getting down. Yeah, to we, it. <laughs> see, we now, get to the win. Okay, let's skip through all that recruiting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> okay, the first game of the '85 season, and I was there by the way with a bunch of my no count friends. On September 2nd in Athens, Georgia, 1985, it was hot. It was your first game to dress out as a true freshman. It was on Labor Day, uh, hot, crowd was crazy. It was on national TV. Mike Shula hits Al Bell with just a few seconds left to win the game. Place goes nuts. What do you remember most about that first time in that uniform? Cutting off a piece of the hedges. You know, at that you time. You too, huh? Oh, yes. Because at that time, I got mine. you know, there were, the rumor was, well, the, the conversation around the locker room and and, and, and and leading up to that ball game was that it was hard to win between the hedges. You know, they kept saying it's hard to win between the hedges. You can't win over in between the hedges. and For everybody else. Yeah. So we went over there, man, and, 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 and almost, almost gave that game away. We was had the lead and lost punt it down. Punt block. Punt, punt block. That's correct. And uh, Al Bell, oh, my God, what a great receiver. Slick. I mean, man, he was smooth route runner, man. From California. California, baby. He could run a route, man, make you think he's going every different direction than the way he's going, boy, and he can get open. But, you know, catching that touchdown there late, you know, with a few seconds left to go on the clock, you know, and winning that ball game, it was was pretty, pretty exciting. Me and my buddies were standing down in that end zone leaning on the fence. I heard the ball hit his hands. It was amazing. What a great day. And speaking of that hedge, we all went over there and tore a piece of that hedge off. But I got this one buddy, and he knows who he is, and I know he's listening. I look over there, and he's 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 been over trying to pull one out of ground. By the, you know, he, he he wanted to pull the whole thing out and stick it in the car and take it back to Tuscaloosa. It was it was a scream. You know, the '85 Iron Bowl later that same season is still one of the greatest games I've ever seen. Van Tick. Van Tiffin scored the winning points with that famous kick, probably the most famous kick in Alabama history after Shula had driven us the length of the field again on another last-minute drive. You still see the pictures. You hear the radio replays of the kick all the time. What in the world was it like playing in a game like that? Unbelievable. You know, I can remember, uh, you know, Coach Perkins telling us before that ball game that we had no idea what this ball game would mean to us. He's talking to the freshmen now, you know, because – you know, at, you know. Obviously, we didn't because it was our first ever Iron Bowl, and you know, and to go out and to be in that type of atmosphere was just amazing. It, it, it was a true bowl game atmosphere, like a national championship type. Oh, national TV: Keith Jackson, Frank Broyles calling the game. Stadium split, big. You know, you know, half half fifty fifty Alabama Auburn and. You know, one side is quiet and the other side is cheering when their team are making plays. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And and to be able to win that on the last second field goal, I mean, we rushed, we, you know, we rushed the field. You know, we rushed the field and just, you know, was jumping all over Van Tiffin, man, in the air with the number one sign, you know, hand up, finger up, you know. And, and it was just fun. It was, it was, that was a great, that was a great year for us. We we had won. Our, I think that was our second ball game we had won like that in late hours, 
you know, of the ball game. Although we tied one against LSU down in, there, in there in Baton fourteen Rouge. to fourteen. That's right, fourteen fourteen. And uh, you know, we so we was in some very very close ball games, but the, the start the year and the end of the year on plays like that. Uh, was it was kind of like was the start of a, a great and the end of a, of a of a magnificent freshman year for me. That '86 team was stocked with stars, and we played an unbelievable schedule. I remember we also played Texas A&M at Birmingham and beat them that year without a conference games against Ohio State in the kickoff classic, uh, Penn State, and we beat Notre Dame in Birmingham and Washington in the Sun Bowl. Uh, I clearly recall against Notre Dame at Legion Field, it was on October 4th, beautiful day, when Greg Richardson returned that punt for a touchdown, I felt like an earthquake had hit the place. I don't know if I've ever heard 83,000 anywhere any louder than that. We won 28-6 on a picture postcard day right across the street from where you grew up. Man, what was it like for Bobby Humphrey that day in Legion Field? Well, you know, to beat Notre Dame, who was one of those teams that, that I that I kind of you know grew up watching and knowing about because at daytime they was the cream of the crop and everybody wanted to go to Notre Dame and they were always it was like the poster child for football you know Notre Dame and uh, to be able to beat them and at that time they had Tim Brown Lou Holtz was the coach you know so they you know they had a lot of swagger you know on that team and, and the coaching staff had a lot of swagger but you know. Uh, for for me, man, to be able to win that game and we were undefeated and I think we went into the Tennessee game, you know, you know, I think we were ranked somewhere number two. I can't remember where we were either. We we're number one or number two. And uh it it was just unbelievable, man. My whole experience, you know, at Alabama, my my freshman in my first two years was just unbelievable. I never knew I could have the success that I had there in my first two years then the things that I did, you know, the entire season. And, uh, and, and to be able to beat Notre Dame, you know, was something very, very special. On national TV. National TV. They, they, and then Cornelius Bennett, my homeboy, you know, they made a poster of him after that, made a print of him after that game tackling Steve Berline, known as the sack, you know, so. Uh, you still of, see it everywhere. Oh, yes. It's still one of the hot selling items now. Daniel Moore print now. Cornelius Bennett hitting him. And uh, Howard Cross catches a touchdown. He was a freshman that came in with us, one of those All-Americans on those high school, you know, top recruits that, you know, he caught a touchdown. Al Bell caught it. You know, it was just a great day. Uh, and it was, a, it was you know, everything clicked that game. And, and the offense played well. Special teams were unbelievable. And the defense, you know, with Canadians and, and Derek Thomas and all those guys in the secondary, Kermit, they played phenomenal. It and was the, just a complete game. And the crowd was on them like a bad suit. I'm telling you what, the crowd was there that day. That, that was why. You know, we were talking about Mississippi State in the intro. That 86 game in Starkville where we beat them 38-3, and you ran for 284 yards that day. Uh, I know they knew your name when it was over because they spent the whole day looking at the back of your jersey. It's got to be a ton of fun to have a day like that. In fact, I sat behind Chris Goode's parents that that day, Mr. and Mrs. Goode, at that game and just had a ball. Uh, probably worried them to death asking them questions, but it was a lot of fun that day in Starkville. You remember that? Oh, yes, I remember that. I remember that very, very well. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's – the, the offensive line that particular ball game killing it it was just unbelievable and you know I and, and people don't realize that but I played with two of the best fullbacks in college football uh, in my 86 season Bo Wright and Doug Allen were two of the best blockers runners they were more blockers first and then runners but they were more runners by ability 
that were that that developed into be being great blockers. Solid football players. Solid, man. I mean, they open up holes after holes after holes. And I tell you, man, I went for I went for two two hundred and eighty four yards and it, it always it, it was like it was like the blink of an eye. You barely got your uniform dirty that day. Yeah, man. It was I was going all day long, man. It was just unbelievable. And and not only did I have a great game, so did Kerry Good. KG had a great game, Gene Jelks. Uh, it was phenomenal, man, the way we played. We were coming off a loss, which is our first loss, which is a week prior to that we had lost to Penn State. And uh, and I think we were just nipping at the bigs to kind of get that one behind us, man. And, you know, Mississippi State was just on the schedule at the wrong time for us, man, because we were upset. We were mad. We were angry. We had just lost. We were, we were winning in that ball game with Penn State 7-0 and and then came out with our first loss and buddy. It was somebody was gonna have to. We were we were ready for payback, and whoever was on the schedule, they was gonna get it handed handed to them. And they did too. Uh, the '87 game the next year, at Penn State, nighttime, prime time, national TV. You had a great game with that long TD run going from right to left on camera. You outran the whole team. Looked good doing it too. I've always wondered what was going through your mind when you had their whole team behind you, nothing but green grass ahead of you, and the whole country watching. Well, what's going on in my mind is not getting caught. <laughs> I was like, "Come on, goal line!" <laughs> oh man, it would look like a bunch of it looked like cows chasing a deer out there that night. Those guys weren't going to catch you. I could, you know, uh, nah. Yeah, you're talking about the night being set, man. You're talking about Brent Smosberger on national TV, yeah. CBS, and Penn State had the longest winning winning streak at that time. You know, they were coming off a of 19. They were coming out of a national championship year and. And uh, it was actually Bill Curry's first year coaching. and, and uh, But, you know, he never lost to Penn State or we never, Tennessee. We never lost. And, and doing Perkins, my two years of Perkins, he lost to Penn State twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's just one of those things, man, that – and I, I think it was about time for us to turn the tables on Penn State. They would beat us two years in a row. They beat us in 85 and 86. And uh, I think the guys kind of just got to the point where, hold on, man, we, we can't lose to them a third time, not three times in a row. And I think everybody just made a valid effort to do, you know, to just put together the most complete game they can possibly put together. You know, a lot of things happened in that ball game uh, that was some spectacular highlight plays. You know, Lamar Russell, you know. Uh, Number 81. That, that two-point conversion, you know, by you – yeah. it was on a, a flanker screen reverse. Something like that. And Clay Whitehurst just threw the ball over his head. Lamar Russell catches in the back of the end zone for a two-point conversion. I have a halfback pass to go all the way down to the one of 50 – 57-yard halfback pass to Clay Whitehurst that goes all the way down to the one. So, you know, it's, there are a lot of different things, spectacular things happening. About Derek Thomas had just a phenomenal game, you know, at linebacker. And, you know, so that, you know, everything just clicked for us that game. Lee Osmond, you know, in the secondary, he has a great game, you know, strong safety. And, uh, you know, so things just happened in that ball game that I think guys just made a valid effort that said, man, you know what? You know, he beat us two years in a row. It's, it's time for stepping. You know, spe- you know, speaking of Derek Thomas, you know, what's what's amazing is uh, the incredible career he had in the pros. And when you look back now, we didn't even as good as we knew he was then. We didn't know how good he was until much later because he dominated the NFL. Oh, that's that's dominated. I I think we, I think at some time. Sometimes at some point in time, they started trying to move Derrick around to various positions, you know, playing him a little bit inside, outside, and just letting him just, you know, just play free and, and just try to run to the ball and make plays. 
But you're right. I, I don't think he ever came into his own until he really got to the NFL. And uh, obviously, you know, we know what he did. He set the single season, single game sack record in the NFL. And, you know, just a number of records that he crushed in the NFL and with the Kansas City Chiefs, you know. Just a guy with a lot of ability. You know, Derek used to work out with skill guys. You know what I mean? When I'm talking about the conditioning. Yeah. You know, he would get in and he would run with us. And, and, and he and he stayed up front with us. Well, you know, it wasn't like he, you know, he was trailing the back of the line like you would see, you know, an a, a offensive lineman or some trailing the back of the line with a skill guy. Now Derek was up front, you know, running with the wide receivers and DBs and running backs, and he was, you know, six three, you know, two hundred and you know, thirty five pounds. Oh uh, yeah, it's a beast, man, coming yeah. off the corner. You know, you were a first round draft choice yourself. Ran for a lot of yards in the pros. Would have been NFL Rookie of the Year if it hadn't been for some guy named Barry Sanders. Made the Pro Bowl, played in the Super Bowl. That's strong stuff, man. As a player, it must give you an incredible amount of satisfaction to know you were one of the best at that elite level. What one thing may have been a surprise, though, when you got to that level and found yourself balling with the best? Well, uh, I think that the, the most surprising thing is that as I was able to compete at that level. You know, and what I mean compete at that level is be productive competing at that level. Not be overwhelmed. Right. And, you know, um, when you make it to the NFL, you're talking about you playing among the elite. You know, although you see some teams that are not very good in the NFL, doesn't mean they don't have good They're players. They're still athletes. They're still good players. <laughs> you know, you're taking the best of the best and you just distributed them throughout, you know, uh, you know, the NFL, you know, a variety of teams. And, and to be able to compete on that level uh, was one of the things that uh, – I think I I felt really proud about, you know, being able to make Rookie of the Year and competing with Derrick Sanders and on that level and all those guys there. Hall of Fame guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, you think about that, you know, I was one of those guys, you know. So, you know, and and when you're talking about playing the NFL, you had to make a lot of adjustments, and I was able to make those adjustments, you know, over a three, four-game span, you know, because the first five games I I didn't play much. I was more of a backup role, but after the fifth game, I came became into the starting lineup and came starting lineup for a starting role for the uh, for the tailback position. You know, you've been a player and a coach. You hear a lot about guys making that transition from high school to college, the speed of the game, and the transition from college ball to pro ball. Which one do you think's harder for a, your average athlete to make? I, I think uh, definitely, without a doubt, making an adjustment from uh, high school to college. Uh, most kids know, that play high school ball are, are, are you're, you're the kid on the street. Your average neighborhood kid that just wants <clears> to play <throat> ball. You go to college, all of a sudden, there's those guys are big and fast, right? You, because you, you still you got to realize, you know, you're still in a developmental stage, a physical and mental developmental stage, more physical than mental. NFL becomes a little bit more mental, but physically, with your physical built. It's probably at its completeness, you know, once you get to the NFL. But when you're talking about an 18-year-old playing against somebody that's 21, that's that's a big jump. And, you know, and most guys can't make the adjustment, you know. Uh, you take uh, – most guys like a T.J. Yielding, if you look at this kid, he's already physically – Very mature. Very mature. Yeah, very mature. But, you know, most kids not like that. Maybe take them a year, red shirt year, a couple of years. And going and going by what I saw Saturday at Missouri, he can fly too. He went, yeah. go, <laughs> went in from the four yeah, and a half yard wings. line. Goodness gracious! Oh, goodness gracious! You know, uh, 
as a former player at Bama and a former coach, what do you pay the most attention to when you watch Bama play? Well, you know, I really don't watch much of anything, Steve. I just like enjoying watching the ball game. So now it's not it's not like a clinic to you. You're no, just enjoying the I'm game. I'm just enjoying the game. Yeah. You know, I'm enjoying the game. Now my now my son who plays at Hoover, you know, I kinda watch a little bit more in detail. Is that Marlon? That's Marlon. You know, I, I watch more in detail in trying sure. to evaluate him because, you know, I would say something to him once he gets home about, you know, you could have done this, done that. Uh, you know, you got to get off your blocks a little better to be in position to make the tackle. You know, things of that nature. Sure. Uh, so I'm watching a little bit more close in detail, I guess, because I have a son that, you know, I'm trying to help critique and trying to help him get better. You know, I was just going to I was just going to mention, you know, you got to be awfully proud. Uh, are all three of them playing? I know Madrikas is at Arkansas, right? Right. Okay. Now, there's another son. I, I forgot his name. It's Marion. Marion. Okay. Now, how old is he now? He's 12 and he's seventh grade. He's playing at the middle school. Okay. And then Marlon's in his junior year? Marlon's in his junior year. What, you know, you went through the recruiting thing yourself. You went through it with your oldest son, uh, now Marlon. How's that playing out for you guys? What uh, do they just worry you to death, or or do you tell? What do you tell them as far as how to sort of work their way through that process? Well, you know, uh, I don't know if I tell them much as I show them. I, I try to show them a little bit more than I tell them, you know, because sometimes showing is is a better example than telling. Kind of like action speaks louder than words, you know, in that situation. But, you know, one of the things I try to make sure, you know, my kids understand is that, first of all, their gift come from God, and they should be humble to be able to be blessed with it. And, Amen. And, and to always, you know, give God credit first, you know, for their abilities and, and to never get beside themselves and let them know how short this career is going to be for them. You know, it's not going to last very long, although they think sometimes that, you know, they're going to play football for a long time and enjoy the moment. But, the truth be told, you know, you know, you got a short window. That's for every athlete. It's yeah. a small window. Some kids play high school, don't get a chance to play college. Guys that play college don't get a chance to play pro. Guys that play pro only got a lifespan of two and a half years. You an ankle or a knee away from working at the mall. Or just out of the game totally because yeah. somebody else has come in, you know, that that's better than you are. Or, it's, or maybe you don't fit into the scheme. You know, a variety of reasons. That, that shorten that career span of being an athlete. So you got to enjoy the moment while it is, seize it, enjoy it, appreciate it, be humble about it, and try to reach the highest level you can possibly reach and make sure you reap all the benefits that, that you can receive during that period of time. Because when it's over with, it's gone. I retired at the age of 27. You know, my last year with the Dolphins in 93 was my last year actually playing on the field. Yep. So it was a very, very short career for Bobby Humphrey. Well, that's and, a good word, Bobby. That's a good word. Bama's got a bunch of talented running backs right now, and even though Fowler and Hart are out with injuries, what, uh, what are you seeing? What do you like about you know, the best about Lacey and Yeldon and Drake? Uh, two of them are true freshmen and the kind of kids Bama's recruiting these days. You know, it, our running thing is he recruits great backs, but none of them, all of them have different techniques, different tangibles. You know, you take uh, Lacey, who's more of a bruiser runner, yeah, really good. And then you take Yield, and he's you know, he's great out of the backfield with hands, very shifty, very shifty, but he can still be the bruiser. And then you just have straight up speed, you know, with uh, with Drake or you know, you know those they, they, he has to bring a new dimension to the game. All those guys got three different running styles, but they all effective. 
you know, that's pretty pretty good. You know, Saban does not have, like, one back he actually recruits. He just recruits backs that are good and can tote the mail. And they all have different type of running styles, you know. And, and that's usually, you know, you take LSU. Most LSU backs are like power backs. Seem like what they recruit. You, you got a guy like and, Ware who and, runs power, strong, and then he'll But Alabama backs, they give you a different – they give you a different look whenever they're in the ball game, but yet they they effective. And I, I tell you what, what seems to me too, like with uh, the guys saving recruits, not not only running backs but all the kids. If they're not coachable, it doesn't matter how good they are; they won't last. They won't fit in. They got to be coachable. They got to be mature enough to submit to coaching, to submit to the process and the program. Uh, we got Mississippi State coming up this week. Um, Tell us what you think about where the tide is right now, and what we got to do, and what we got to improve on. What, you, how you think it's going to play out over the next few weeks, uh, so we can get where we want to be in Miami come early January. Well, I think Tide is playing really good football. I think what the Tide had to focus on is the Tide. Uh, you know, the only loss that they can get is the loss that they give themselves. You know, it's, and that's very capable of them starting to drink their own Kool Aid. However, I don't think any teams that are going to lay down for them. Mississippi State. Has a lot of momentum going in. Uh, the, the the quarterback they have over there, Russell, is playing about as good as a, a, you know. A he can play. Can play. He, he he plays very very well. And uh, and Mississippi State is you know I think this may be the first time in history that uh, Mississippi State will be coming in uh, to uh, Tuscaloosa undefeated seven and zero. Possibility they could be seven and zero coming into this ball game. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Yeah. So you know you don't you don't want to let your guards down and and take anybody lightly. So Obama is going to have to have uh, going to have to bring their A game, you know, and I think they will. I think they, one of the things that I see that Alabama has on a lot of teams is that their preparation, they seem to be more prepared for the game, and they have great uh, game coaching. Their game coaching is, is, is very, very good. Interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, they do a great job of, you know, coaching on the spot and, and making adjustments on the spot. And, and you know, typically that is really the <laughs> – the turning point and changes in the ball game is, is how you make adjustment during the course of the game. Do you make an adjustment to do something different or do you stay with your game plan although it's not working? Do you tweak this? Do you tweak that to make sure you allow your guys to be in position to make plays and be able to be successful? Or do you continue to do anything things and just continue to go and stalemate? So I, I think, you know, you know, on the field coaching, making adjustments is something Alabama do a great job of. Bobby, I've had a ball today. It's been a ton of fun having you in the house and getting to visit for a while and getting to chat and yak and all that kind of thing and carry <laughs> on. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking time and making the effort to come by. I hope you'll come back and see us again sometime. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, best way to reach me, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements now, whether it be uh, church engagements, youth groups, you know, sports banquets, uh, motivational speaking uh, spiritual speaking and, and all those kind of things. But I'm currently now working at Bryant Bank. Uh, my office is at the 150 location in, there in Hoover, Alabama. And I, and I enjoy working in, in the banking industry. It's, it's something that's been uh, uh, that's been different for me, but I've, I've grown to love it and I do enjoy it. It's given me an opportunity to get out and still meet people and, and, uh, and talk a little bit about football <laughs> in the process of trying to get some banking business. Uh, but my cell phone number and my uh, work number is area code 205-281-0327 is the number I can be reached on. Or you can just email me at bobbyh at readymixusa.com. 
So uh, either one of those two ways you can reach me, and I'd be happy to come out and uh, and uh, visit with you, speak to you, and see if you want to buy a CD or do some business with you. While we run the last few seconds off the game clock, I want to share that I had the opportunity to hear Alabama Gymnastics head coach Sarah Patterson speak at the Over the Mountain Touchdown Club here in Birmingham Sunday night, and she was fabulous. It was ladies' night at the meeting with an emphasis on breast cancer awareness, and she did a great job with a talk that touched everybody in the room. If you get a chance to hear her speak, don't miss it. She was the last coach Coach Bryant hired, and it's perfectly clear why he did so. We want to remind you that the first annual Jeremiah Castile Celebrity Golf Invitational it's going to be held at Robert Trent Jones Trail at Oxmoor Valley in Birmingham on October 26th. For more information, contact Barbara at castilefoundation.org or call 251-621-3375. As always, you can access Bama Talk Show in the podcast section of iTunes, but you can also find us at bigbrainsmedia.com. There are a number of other shows on the menu there that you may enjoy, and we hope you'll take advantage of the free downloads, and subscribing makes it easy and automatic. Don't forget to visit our Bama Talk Facebook page and let us know from whence you're listening. If you'd like to respond to my ramblings, feel free to send me an email at steve at bamatalkshow.com. We had a ball, y'all. We hope you'll keep listening. Till next time, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide.